All right, so everyone worships something, regardless of your relationship to organized religion. The ultimate reason that you do this, that you worship something, even if you're not religious, is because you are made in the image of God. You were made by God to be shaped and to enjoy the best of all things. That is why you spend most of your waking moments trying to put yourself in position to enjoy the most out of this life. Because God created you, God created you in his image, and God created you to enjoy the best of all things. God is that thing. There is no one and there is no thing like God. Because there is no one stronger, there is no one more present in your life, though you may not feel like it today. There is no one more creative and more compassionate than God. But here's the tension in the drama. Adam and Eve rejected this. All that I just introduced was rejected by the very first human beings. They set something lesser than God as ultimate, as the object of their worship. This means that you too, myself included, are tempted to worship someone or to worship something. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, an agnostic, an atheist, or you consider yourself religious. To figure out what you worship, you have to ask one single question. What grabs my attention the most? What grabs your attention the most is the thing that you worship. Worship is an old school English compound word. In the old English, it actually wasn't worship, it was worth shape. And here's what the old English Christians meant by this. Whatever you consider to be worthy is going to shape you. You were shape. We call it worship because we're Americans who speak English, right? Whatever you consider to be worthy in your life is going to shape you you, one way or another, good, bad, or otherwise. For the first human being, Adam, it wasn't God. It was Eve. For Eve, it wasn't God, and it wasn't Adam. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to think about Adam for a moment. God created Adam distinct out of all creation. The only thing in all creation that contained and showed forth his image to the rest of creation Think about this. Constellations, galaxies, canyons, mountains, waters, basset hounds are glorious. Amen? But they don't image bear God to the rest of creation. They can point to God, but only human beings actually show what God is like. Adam alone was a unique image bearer of God. God gave Adam dominion over everything, everything that he created by his word. Because Adam alone was made in his image. But in the opening verses of the scriptures, we find that that was not enough for Adam, right? You read of his loneliness, because he could name all the cattle, but there was no one like him. So he was lonely. Nothing was worthy enough in existence for Adam to feel whole. Even the virtual, literal, physical presence of God in his life. We know why, after the story, why this is. 
because to be in the image of God means to be in the image of a triune God, three in one, always relational in himself. And Adam had no one like him to relate to. So God created another companion for Adam, another image bearer of God. And God created Adam and Eve as his image bearers. God created them as male and female, two genders and two genders alone. Eve was co-ruler, co-steward of creation alongside Adam. But we see a recurring theme in the opening verses of Scripture. Even though God created Eve with all of this, she was not content. God was not enough. Creation was not enough. Adam was not enough. Adam saw Eve for the first time, and actually, we don't, actually, we don't get the, the coolness of it in English. We read, oh, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? But it's more like, whoa. Like, not W-O-E, but W-H-O-A. Like, whoa, was his response when Adam first saw Eve. Eve saw God in Adam and thought, what else you got? What else is out there? God gave her all things except for one tree, one thing she was called not to do. And that tree became the very thing that she wanted more than God and more than Adam. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, humanity fell, which means that their struggle became the struggle of all of those who had come from them all the way down to you and I still today. Our ability to see God and to savor God as ultimate was destroyed. Your ability to experience and to enjoy God as the highest of all enjoyments died in Adam and Eve. That's why you're lackluster this morning. That's why you are ultimately low this morning. It's because of Adam and Eve. You have a nature and I have a nature. No one wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I just want Jesus. Pastors included. Our ability to see things as they are from God's perspective died in Adam and Eve. And included in this, I believe, is the true value of a woman. Even though Adam and Eve are equal image bearers of God, even Eve alone is distinctly female. There is no one out there in creation that can be female but female, because God uniquely created her. The irony of 21st century American culture is that we believe that we are the most tolerant and the most sophisticated culture out there that has ever existed. Yet, this culture devalues the true value and identity of a woman as an image bearer of God. The value of a woman is found in her God omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God who created her as female in his image. The wisdom of Proverbs moves us today to value all that God created a woman to be. Let's get to our proposition. Today we're going to see that an excellent woman, she influences all that she comes into contact with because God is her highest value above all else. In Proverbs 31, we ask the fundamental question, what is a woman? In American culture, 
cannot give you a sufficient answer to that question. In America, definitions are fluid. It's up to the definer to define what truth is and therefore what a woman is. And you know what? They're partially right, but they see things upside down because the ultimate definer of all things are not you and me. It is the God who created all things. If God calls some substance that does this, and you can actually go into it, and he calls it water, it's called water. And only that, right? Because he created it. Much like you, if you create some sort of beautiful portrait, and you know your heart, you know the colors you chose, the techniques that you use, and someone comes and tells you how you painted that, you say, no, no, no. I painted it this way. This was my intention. American culture, add on to this, that you and I, we have this innate desire as Americans for independence, autonomy. No one can tell us what to do. And because of that, we reject God as our ultimate authority, just like Adam and Eve did. So we ask, what is a woman? A woman is a unique image bearer of God. No one is like her and can be like her. And she is the one that shows God what the world is like. Today, Proverbs 31 tells us what makes a woman excellent. And before we get started, selfishly, I have to geek out for a moment on Proverbs 31. You're stuck with this because I'm your pastor and you're here. All right, but I got to geek out on this. If you and I, were Jewish people in the 10th, 11th century. And we were reading this in our native tongue. You and I would see that Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, is an acrostic. You know what acrostic is, right? The first line of the sentence begins with the first letter of the alphabet, second line, the second letter, and so on. Acrostic. The first word of verse 10 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's actually Aleph. The reason why we, we call our alphabet alphabet is because the first two words in Hebrew, an Aleph and a Bet. I don't know if you knew that. I'm geeking out right now. The first word of verse 11 begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Bet. And on and on it goes through verse 31 for the 21 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, here's where the geeky part comes in. You cannot find this in Hebrew in any other book of the Jewish Bible. We divide their scriptures into 39 books. And you cannot find any other place in the scriptures where a Hebrew acrostic is used except Psalm 119. And those of you who read Psalm 119 knows what's going on in that chapter, right? It's the longest verse in the uh, chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And if you've read it, you know that Psalm 119 is divided by eight sets, right? Eight verses times 21, 176. And then you get to the first verse, eight verses. And they, every verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second set of eight verses begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And on and on and on it goes. Isn't this brilliant? Can you see why I'm geeking out on it? It's beautiful. No other religious book on the planet reads like the Bible. None. 
Psalm 119 is all about the superiority of God's word in our lives. And Proverbs 31 is all about the value, the superior value of a godly woman in our lives. What's the point of God doing this with Psalm 119 and Proverbs 31? There are only two Hebrew acrostics in the whole Jewish Bible. One that celebrates the centrality of Scripture in a good Jew's life. And the other to celebrate an excellent woman in Jewish culture. And is still true today. What makes an excellent woman? Proverbs 31's conclusion is a woman who fears God above all. Let's get started. Point one, you're going to see that a woman who lives for God is more valuable than all earthly treasure. All earthly treasure, men of heritage. Proverbs 31 goes straight to the issue and poses the issue as a question. Let's take a look at verse 10. The wisdom writer asks, an excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of human life. Verse 10 acknowledges that an excellent woman, a godly woman, a woman who fears God is hard to find. That's the tragedy. They are rare. Like Jesus said, they are like treasures hidden in a field. Their value is without measure. The wisdom writer laments that an excellent woman is hard to find. And we have to ask, why is this? I mean, this was a culture and a society that was wholly dedicated to Yahweh. Why is an excellent woman hard to find? And I believe that whether it's 11th century Jewish culture or 21st century American culture, that all women carry the same sin nature as a man. We're equal in value, and we are equal in sin nature. They, too, struggle, just like men, to believe and to trust God's promises, to believe and trust in the character of God, especially in adversity. A woman struggles just as much as a man to fear the Lord. But these are the precise points that actually makes an excellent woman. So now I want to jump to verse 30. And you got to get used to this this summer. We're going to be all over the Proverbs. We may be in this chapter, this verse, this chapter, this verse, next, but we'll go through it as we always do, phrase by phrase, word for word, okay? Verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Hallelujah, yeah, hallelujah that's right. American culture tempts a woman to pursue charm. And to pursue beauty, American culture is highly visual. And technology, advanced technology today, makes it even worse. I think we would be convicted, and many of us would feel shame, if we could reveal to each other how much time we actually spend on social media platforms pursuing empty charm and empty beauty. The number one user of social media is a woman. Vernon just said, it's not me. We know that's true. And because of this, 
It can tempt a woman into thinking that the external qualities of life, what is being portrayed to them in 30-second snaps of someone's life, the best moments that they want to share, the funniest moments they want to share, that these external things are more important, more valuable than inner qualities of life. They lose focus of what gives them value. In Heritage, we don't have to think too far back than to Wednesday at Gather as we struggle together about how we tie our worth to our work. Remember talking about that on Wednesday night? This is a human problem. A woman is valuable, not because she gives in to the cultural standards of charm and beauty, but because she knows and loves the God who created her in his image. The writer says that a focus on charm and beauty is deceitful and vain. It's tricksy. Right? Charm and beauty are temporary. Therefore, making the pursuit of charm and beauty as your ultimate pursuit is an empty pursuit. It is a trivial pursuit. An excellent woman knows this. Amen, excellent women? Because there are many in this room today. The wisdom writer is not saying, therefore, that an excellent woman lacks charm and lacks beauty. No, 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 no. Do not get the writer wrong. The wisdom writer is saying that an excellent woman puts charm and beauty in its proper perspective. It knows where it belongs in the order of things. That is what makes her truly charming and beautiful. The wise woman doesn't put her ultimate value in temporary things. She wisely knows how to order temporary things in her life. That's why she's wise. The wise woman finds her value in God above all things. Not in romantic relationships. Not in marriage, not in parenting, not in work, not in wealth, not in hobbies, and not in friendship. The wisdom writer says that this kind of woman, a woman who fears God as her ultimate value, is a woman to be praised. But contrast that with how many likes and social affirmations these types of women would experience on American cultural social media today. Right? Let's get back to verse 10 for a moment. Jess, are you okay bringing it back up? Verse 10. This kind of woman, this excellent woman, this woman who fears God is worthy. And the wisdom writer says that her worth is far above jewels. Men, do you see that? It is ironic then to see men put wealth above women in their lives. It is tragic, on the other end, to see women who put men into their lives who put wealth above them. So it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It is ironic for men to put wealth above women in their lives when women's worth is far above jewels. And it's tragic for a woman to put inferior men who will put wealth and hobbies above them. When scripture says that her worth is far above it all. Women, you do this. You put sucky guys in your life, to be honest. 
and you think they're going to change, that you can change them. Only God can change the heart. You're not God. That's Eve's struggle. She tried to control the situation. She wanted to be like God. And Satan's like, I got her, because that was my struggle too. Both are effects and proofs. One, that Adam and Eve are real. They're real historical people. Because it doesn't matter if it's people in South Africa a thousand years ago, or these Jewish men and women 3,000 years ago, or sophisticated Americans today. We all have that same struggle. It shows the timelessness of the scriptures, the authenticity of the scriptures, and it's relevant still for us today. Men put their work above women. And I'll go so far to say is that perhaps the women in your life struggle the way they do because you have shown them consistently that their worth is actually far below Jules. Think about that for a moment, men. Women put inferior men into their lives, and then they put them above God. And if Proverbs is right, and an excellent woman is infinitely more valuable than riches, then why do you and I put riches above an excellent woman? Why do we do this? I believe that it means this, that at the end of the day, it's because you and I are not men who truly fear God. Remember I've said weeks ago, and still even last week, that everything's going to boil down to the question of, do you really fear God? And if you fear God, you're seeing headway and progress in some of these things. And if you don't, you're going to reject everything you're going to hear this summer. We are foolish for thinking that wealth is more valuable than God, and that wealth is more valuable than the excellent woman that God has put into your life. Now, I want us to talk about this word that the wisdom writer uses to describe this woman, that she is excellent. Do you see that? It's a strange Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is chayil. It's only predominantly used in one context in the Jewish scriptures. It's a military term. It's used to describe a soldier's valor in battle. Hayil. Anytime there's a battle in the Old Testament, and it's described, the men that are described who fought, it's Hayil. Over and over and over again. Except for Proverbs 31. We got to ask, God, what are you up to by this? Hayil only really used to describe a man in battle. His strength, his, his valor, his determination. Why do you use this word to describe a woman? I believe it's this. A woman is at war in every generation. And women today are fighting a battle, make no mistake, a very battle over the soul, the identity, the superiority of who she is uniquely as an image bearer of God. Add on to this, that a woman is at war with herself. A woman is at war with the desires that she has, that she values, versus the desires that God has for her. Eve's struggle is her struggle. It's your struggle. The same nature and the same temptations that run through Eve run through you today. In every generation, biblical womanhood is challenged and it is diminished it's not culturally acceptable for you today to live in American culture as a woman and say, God is my highest value. He is the definer of everything, not me. 
you will be ostracized and marginalized for this type of minority point of view. So he asks, okay, what hope is there today for a woman who fears God? What hope is there today for a woman who loves and follows God? Let's bring it back to Hayil for a moment. There is one place and one place alone in the entire Old Testament where Hayil is used to describe a woman. Anyone have a wild guess as to where? Ladies, think about all the women of the Old Testament. My wife just said, Ruth, she already heard the sermon. That's why she knows. It's like, no. Cheating. It is used to describe Ruth and Ruth alone. Specifically, Boaz uses this word to describe Ruth, whom he has come to love. Ruth makes her intentions known to Boaz on the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3 of her intentions to be with Boaz, for Boaz to cover her shame. And I want you to take a look at what Boaz says to her in response. This is Ruth 3.11. This is why, I was reminiscing with Tisa this morning, this is why, whether you know this or not, Ruth is my favorite book of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter, but Ruth is my favorite book of the Bible. And I cannot wait for my year 10 circuits because we are going to redo Bittersweet and go through the book of Ruth again. I can't wait. All right, here's what Boaz says. He tells Ruth, in the dead of night, after he stumbles awake and realizes there's a woman at my feet, he says, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. That's not like Jesus. Ask and you shall receive. Whatever you ask, you ask in my name. All my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And that's it. It's never used ever again to describe a woman until Proverbs 31. So we have to ask, what's going on here? Boaz looks at Ruth and he sees a woman of excellence, a woman of Hayil. Ruth has been through the battles of life and she still lives for God. Ruth has lost her husband and with him all hopes of a secure future in 12th century Middle Eastern culture that was highly patriarchal. Security was found in getting married and having sons to honor and to defend and to protect what you have. More sons, more protection. She had nothing. But a mother-in-law who was also widowed, widowed herself. A mother-in-law whose name was Naomi, which means pleasant in Hebrew. But she's so afflicted with the adversities that the Almighty has brought her way. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm angry. Ruth vows to stay with Naomi. Where Naomi goes, Ruth goes. And Ruth gives up a life in Moab with her paternal family for a life in Bethlehem. Boaz sees this. All of Bethlehem sees this. And because of this, your pastor believes that Ruth is the embodiment of the Proverbs 31 woman. When the wisdom writer wrote 10 through 31, he was thinking of Ruth, and therefore he was thinking about Boaz, that Boaz is the recipient of this excellent woman. 
So ladies of heritage, if you want to learn what it's like to be a woman who lives in the presence of God, you look to the life of Ruth, who experienced famine, who experienced widowhood, who experienced a lack of provision, yet by the end found so much and more in God. This means that Boaz is the husband of the Proverbs 31 woman. Now here's the thing. In verse 23, we learn that an excellent woman's husband is known in the city gates, if you look at verse 23. This is where the elders of Middle Eastern culture, all the who's who, all the people in authority, they gathered at a city's gates, and they talked about matters of the city. Who's coming in, who's going out, what's being done today? That's where the elders met. There's only one other person in the entire Old Testament that's written about being known at the city gates among the elders of the city, and that's Boaz. So if you need more proof that Ruth is this Proverbs 31 woman, there it is. What's the point, Pastor, beyond geeking out? I guess this is geeking out too. Ruth and Boaz are the great, great grandparents of King David. Ruth and Boaz are the great, great, great grandparents of the wisdom writer Solomon, greatest king of all. And even more importantly, Ruth and Boaz is the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. That's why we're geeking out about this. Amen? Ruth and all women who love God above all are battle tested battle-proven, they are beautiful, and they are worthy women. Their worth far surpasses charm and far surpasses beauty and all earthly treasure. Women of heritage, if you fear God above all, if you love to live for God above all, you are that battle-tested, battle-proven, beautiful, worthy woman, and Jesus, the great-great-great-great-grandson of Ruth this Proverbs 31 woman. So let's shift now, and let's see how God uses this worthy woman in those around her. Point two, we'll see that a woman who lives for God shapes all who are present in her life. A woman who fears God is the most influential person on the planet, not presidents and not CEOs, not the Supreme Court, unless there's a godly woman on it, and not lawmakers. Ladies of heritage, you may hear that and say, I don't feel that way today. I do not feel like I am the most influential person on this planet. Instead, you feel tired. You feel ineffective. You feel like no one in your life sees your life and sees it of value. But you are wrong. Your pastor is here to tell you that you are wrong. Jesus died for you. The best of all men left his place as king of the universe, creator of the universe, and he became a pauper. He became a slave who died for you. That is the greatest evidence that speaks to your value. Christ died for you. That is how valuable you are. Your faith today may be the size of a mustard seed, But real faith, no matter how small, 
is given by God himself. And it is proof of his value, of your value in his eyes. And the promise is, over the course of time, over the course of time, highs and lows, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back, God is going to use you to shape those in your life. Make no mistake, women of heritage, your value is not wrapped up in your influence and effectiveness. It's not. Your value is wrapped up in the advent, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. Your value is not wrapped up in your ability to make the people in your life do things. Or to love Jesus, or to care for Jesus, or to come to church. Your value isn't wrapped up in this. Your value is wrapped up in Jesus' love for you. That's where your value is found. Your influence isn't the cause of your value. It's the effect of how much Jesus values you. You get that? Your value isn't wrapped up in what you do. Your effectiveness. It is the effect of God's value of you. Amen? You must remember that Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of being a woman, of building relationships with people who are equally as beautiful and broken as you. So we're going to see in our final verses how a woman who fears God influences those in her life. For better or worse, if a woman is married, you can see the greatest impact of her work, good, bad, or otherwise, beauty or brokenness in her husband. Before we get there, let's look at verses 25 and 26. The wisdom writer says that strength and dignity to her clothing, not charm and beauty, strength and dignity, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The woman who fears God doesn't clothe herself with temporary charm or beauty. The woman who truly fears God makes strength and dignity her clothing. She's valuable because she knows whose image she's made in. So she allows her image to reflect whose image she was created in. Do you get that? That's a theology. An application varies by time period and culture. On this Mother's Day, I have to ask you, women of heritage, what do you want to be known for? When someone hears your name, what do you want their response to be? You have to think this way. You have to play with the end in mind. You have to. Because then what are you playing for? Do you want to be known for pursuing charm and beauty above all? Do you want to be known for pursuing lesser men above Jesus, who is the best of all men? Is that what you want to be known for? Do you want to be known as a woman who follows her own voice, independent, free-thinking woman who never conformed to another voice in this life? Is that how you want to be known? Do you want to be known as a woman who follows the voice of culture and friends and family around her above all things? Or do you want to be known as a strong, dignified, and wise woman? If so, this desire begins today by fearing God, 
by leaning on God above your own understanding. Especially when something that God tells you clashes with what you want to do. I think that's where it's truly proven, male or female, man or woman, whether we fear God. When what we want to do clashes with what God wants to do, your response truly shows whether you fear God, meaning whether you are a Christian or not. Ruth did this. Those of you who know the story of Ruth, you know that common sense would have Ruth to go back to Moab, go back to her father's house, and maybe her family could broker another marriage to provide security in this life. An old Moabite woman can't live alone. She'll be raided. She'll be destroyed. She needs security in this culture. It's a different culture than America. Orpah did this. In the very opening of the first chapter, right? Naomi's like, I heard that Bethlehem, that things are good again. I'm going to go home. My husband has died. My boys have died. There's nothing for me here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And Ruth and Orpah begin to follow her, walk with her back to Bethlehem. But after a little bit of walking, my feet hurt. (laughs) Orpah decides to go back to Moab. But Ruth has come to know and to love Naomi and Naomi's God, Yahweh, our God. So she doesn't go back home. It's no longer her home. Her home is in the presence of God and the presence of God's people like Naomi. That's her home. The wisdom writer says that a woman who fears God opens her mouth and two things comes out, wisdom and kindness. But for today and the purpose of today, I just want to focus on kindness for a a moment. Kindness is the Hebrew word. I got to get the right inflection Chesed. Chesed. It is the Old Testament Hebrew equivalent of the Greek New Testament word agape. Now, you know agape, right? It is the undeserved, never-failing, never-ending, loving-kindness of God by which you do not deserve. When a woman fears God, when a woman sets God as her ultimate value, God creates chesed in her heart. That's the promise. And that is why she is truly a unique image bearer of God. Women bear the heart of God, his chesed to the world. She becomes an extension of God's loving kindness to all that she comes into contact with. And we're going to see the first application. If this woman is married, that is the plan and the purpose God has for her will be with her husband. Let's look at verse 11. It says that the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Like I said, good, bad, or otherwise, Proverbs acknowledges the beauty and the brokenness of our relationships. Good, bad, or otherwise, the way a woman lives for God is going to increase her husband's capacity to trust God or destroy it. That's how powerful a woman's value is in the eyes of God. Christianity does not suppress a woman's value. Christianity is the only thought system on this planet that fully restores it. Women of heritage, the way to work in your husband right now isn't to control, but it's simply to live life for the best of all men, Jesus Christ himself, and to allow the relationships in your life to witness it. Don't do it privately. 
Don't do it when nobody's up. Do it for people to see. Not so they can see it, but God will use the public walk of a real woman to do something in the hearts of those in her life. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. It says that her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. A woman who fears God, who lives for God, is praiseworthy. Her husband praises her to others. So men, I have to ask the ladies this. Wives, when was the last time your husband truly praised you? Not for a response that he wants, but just to truly praise you. Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember? Now, husbands, I've heard the excuses before. Well, I'm not so good with words. I'm not good with them, those things called words. She knows how I feel. But it's amazing to see how we can talk about that play on the game last night. We can talk all day about our hobby, our car building, our fishing, our hunting, whatever it is that you do. You can talk about your job all day long, all day long. Many different ways, many different angles. Wives know this, they hear it all the time. And they wonder, why can't he speak to me in this way? Or about me in this way? Talk about me at this length in this way. I know, I know they do. This kind of attitude, men who gather at heritage, shows that you do not fear God as you should. You don't realize that God is in the heavens and you are on earth. Let your words be few. Like the wisdom writer Ecclesiastes says, Kohelet, which is Solomon. God tells you, men, that your wife is better than wealth. She is better than your hobbies that you put so much effort into. But as I said last Sunday, you will reject the wisdom of Proverbs. Come up with whatever excuse. Oh, it's just Joe. You'll come up with whatever excuse you want to reject the wisdom of Proverbs if you don't fear God before you come into this place. Because I can't make you fear God. If you don't already fear God when you walk into this room today, you will reject Proverbs 31. Ladies, I know that you just resign yourself over time to the husband's complacency and lack of effort. He works so much. He is a good provider. It's just who he is. He isn't going to change. Your husband can change, but only if God changes him. Trust me, the job of a pastor is the schizophrenic relationship of preaching for change, yet only God can bring change. It's a crazy job. It's maybe a little bit as to what a wife is like, right? To tend to a home. You make it your aim to live for and to love the best of all men, Jesus Christ himself, in front of this lesser man. And you will see God do a work in him, good, bad, or otherwise. We also see that this woman's children rises up to praise her. But we got to ask a question. When does an adult man or woman first learn how to use their words? It's in the family, right? It's watching mom 
and dad use words to praise the wife. Children watch the presence of these words or the absence of these words, and they mimic. Or some of us grow up in homes, and we're like, I want to be a man who is exactly the opposite of the man that I grew up watching. This means that the home of an excellent woman is a vocal home. Ladies of Heritage, I know your struggle with your children. I know. They follow every voice, every single voice out there on the planet except your voice and God's voice because they don't want to be like you. They want their space to be creative and be their own person. You cannot change this. Only God can. The only string that you can play is loving and living for God. Authentically, you're not perfect, but authentically in front of them, publicly. The only thing you can do is let your words and actions, though you aren't perfect, be a consistent example of what God does in a person. Despite how you feel today, ladies of heritage, this is true. This is true. Your children may not listen to your voice or God's voice. At the end of the day, they are foolish for it, not you. They are the fool. They are the wasted life, not your life, not your value. Their foolishness does not diminish your value, though you feel that today. We know this because Jesus said it. We've reviewed it. Rains and winds and floods are going to come to the wise or the fool. It is going to challenge and reveal the foundation of everyone's life. And Jesus promises that those who hear and do his word, when those adversities come, that the wise will stand and the fool will fall. And in that moment, ladies of heritage, because you have been publicly and consistently loving God in their lives, what's going to show in that adversity is Hasid, the mercy, love, and kindness of God. Let's look at verse 15. It says, This woman rises also while it's still night. And here's what I want to focus on. Not that she works all night. But that she gives food to her household. We've covered that. But also portions to her maidens. Right? Closest connection would be like our friendships and connections today. A woman who fears God is a generous woman. She is a giver. Not only to her family, but to her maidens. The heart of a wise woman is ordered rightly. God, spouse, children, then relationships. Her love for God, though, doesn't stop with marriage and family. It overflows to other relationships, even to her maidens. And then finally, verse 20, it says that she extends her hand to the poor. That she stretches out her hands to the needy. In Jewish culture, you don't touch people who are struggling because they believe that whatever struggle they had transfers to you by touch. The closest connection is how we were forced to interact with each other a couple of years ago around the world. You don't go into close proximity with people who are sick because they'll transfer to you. That's old, stinky thinking of humanity. Even the Jews felt this way. You don't touch a leper, you get leprosy yourself. But we see Jesus touching the leper. 
You don't touch the woman who's been bleeding uncontrollably for 12 years. You're unclean. Jesus touches her, right? This woman touches the poor. She engages with the poor. She engages with the needy. Why? Because she's an image bearer of God. God is creating chesed, loving kindness in her heart, and she shows it to everybody, not just her husband, not just her kids, not just her friends, but even to the marginalized, even to the outcast, even to the needy. Wow, what a woman, right? A woman who fears God above all is used by God in the lives of all that she comes into contact with. So we close and ask, how do I know if I am a woman like Ruth, like this woman in Proverbs 31. you got to come back next week. That's why we're coming back to Proverbs 31. But for now, what I want to say is that it all comes down to whether you fear God or not, whether you trust in him with all of your heart, and whether you lean on his understanding above and beyond your own. So the question I have to ask is, do you fear God? Men and women of heritage, do you fear God? Is the presence of God in your life a comfort and a joy? Or is it an obstacle to how you really want to live life? The answer shows whether you fear God. A woman who fears God is more valuable than all earthly treasure. And God will use her to shape all that she comes into contact with. So let us pray for the women of heritage that they will not abandon this endeavor to love and live for God above all things, to trust in him with all of their hearts and to lean on his understanding above their own. Because I will tell you men, they walk and they are weary. They stumble and fall no matter the best face they try to put forward for you today. They are tired and weary and they struggle. So we need to pray for them.